Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've mentioned before that I grew up just 30 miles away from the birthplace of Annie Oakley, who is the namesake of our uh, first show in the St. Luke's on Broadway series, Annie Get Your Gun. But uh, unfortunately, I also grew up even closer to someone else, a little bit more different, Jim Jones. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the tragedy at Jonestown, Guyana. Jim Jones was born in 1931 in Crete, Indiana, and after a few years of his childhood there, his mother took his family to Indianapolis. There he would finish his schooling, he would find a young woman, they would get married, their service was actually held in a Methodist church, and he would start to hear a call to ministry. While he was in college, he served as a student pastor at a small Methodist church in Indianapolis. But after a few years serving that church, uh, there were sharp disagreements with the church leadership, and he left the church to start a church on his own. And from the beginning, you could grasp who he believed Jesus to be. It was evident in the way he carried out his ministry. Although he talked about God's love, He really ruled things with an iron fist. He wouldn't let anyone disagree with him. He wouldn't tolerate anyone falling asleep in worship. He would humiliate them. Um, He wouldn't have anyone who disagreed with him. Now, while he was there in Indianapolis, his church grew, but because he was in ministry to the poor, it didn't bring in the wealth that he really desired. And so he convinced a lot of his parishioners to make the move to California. And there the church grew even more. He preached a message of racial equality. And yet in reality, the only people that he would give even a little bit of control or authority to were white women, um, most of whom he was abusing. And so he would speak this one message and yet really it wasn't the truth. It wasn't how he really lived. And he started to talk against God, against Jesus. He called the God of the Bible outdated and that people really needed to follow him. He began uh, faith healing and he started to get into financial problems in California for how he mismanaged money. You see, he took the teachings of Jesus about giving to the poor and he twisted that and he convinced his own Uh, followers, largely who were very poor, to give him all of their possessions. 
he started to convince them that they were being persecuted. And so he talked them into moving to Guyana, getting away from the troubles of the world, escaping from it all, and moving to set up their own utopia in Guyana. He convinced over a thousand people to make that move with him. And once there, he established Jonestown, which really was far more like a prison camp. He ruled that place. He caused many people to be abused and punished. Many were overworked, and they faced the harshest of conditions. More and more, uh, his sermons, his teachings were against Jesus. He really uh, could understand what he believed about Jesus by the way that he taught his people. He ridiculed anyone who prayed to Jesus. In fact, he told everyone that they were to refer to him, himself, Jim Jones, as dad. There was one man in particular who was sick, and he publicly humiliated and shamed this man for praying to Jesus. He said, if you want health, you pray and call on your dad. He said, anyone who prays to Jesus when they're sick will end up dying. If you want a chance at life, call on dad. It was in November of 1978 that Congressman Leo Ryan uh, made made arrangements to take a trip to Guyana based on the concerns of many of his constituents who had family members in Jonestown. And so once he arrived there, he arranged for anyone who wanted to leave Jonestown and return back to the U.S. to come along with him. And more and more people took that option. And it was just too much for Jim Jones to handle. He arranged for some of his soldiers to go to the airstrip and murder the ones who were trying to leave. And then he convinced all of his followers And he talked to them, and he pulled out this scenario that they had been practicing for so long. And in the end, he took over 900 lives that day. He would not die alone. He took all of his followers, almost all of them, with him. You could see who he really believed the Christ, the Savior, to be by the atrocities by the way that he spoke, by the way he manipulated? How would we answer the question of Jesus? Who do you say that I am? This morning, I will conclude our sermon series, Questions. What does Christ ask of us? Now, one of the beneficial ways of reading scripture is to put yourself in the midst of the passage. And throughout this sermon series, we have been looking at these questions by placing ourselves in the midst of the story, as if Jesus is standing right in front of us, asking us the question. And so this morning, how would we answer Jesus? Who do you say that I am? This morning's scripture passage comes from the Gospel of Matthew, and it recounts the story of when Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. I spoke a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago. Caesarea Philippi is in the northern part of Israel. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, 
And it's an important part because uh, it is the source, the main source of the Jordan River. There's a large spring-fed stream that comes from the base of Mount Hermon. There's a large cave at the base of the mountain, and this spring comes forth with crystal clear water. But it also was a site of pagan worship. Uh, The god Pan was worshipped there. And Jesus brought his disciples to this place and asked them the question, who do you say that I am? Now, Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation for himself. He was understanding that the answer to that question was important for the disciples. They would face hardships and persecutions in life. And the answer to that question could give them the courage and the hope that they needed for their ministry and for the rest of their lives. And so there are three things that I want to discuss this morning to help us answer the question and to live lives that reflect who we believe Jesus to be. And so first, it's important to see that Jesus asked two questions in this passage. When he brings the disciples here to Caesarea Philippi, he first asks them, who do people say that I am? And after they respond, he turns around and says, but who do you say that I am. Now, he was highlighting this because the idea was that they were going to face many things from the world around them. The world would tell them many things about Jesus, and it was important that they had their own belief about who Jesus was. I've been sharing with you stories about James Garfield in the book that I read, He was our 20th president and unfortunately only served 200 days in office uh, before he was assassinated. But he was an incredible man of character and value. I really come to admire and respect him. He was a man of deep faith, especially when he faced the hardest moments of his life. Now, he loved his family dearly, especially his wife, Lucretia. In the first six years of their marriage, however, he was only at home with her six weeks, and that did not make for a happy marriage, and she let him know her thoughts on that subject. And so he changed the way he lived, and he respected how much she was committed to their marriage. He respected how devoted she was to God and to him, and so he changed everything to be a committed husband and father, and he dearly loved his wife for the rest of his days. Well, after he was elected to the presidency in May of 1881, Lucretia became deathly ill with malaria. The doctors actually thought that she was going to die in the White House. But day after day, President Garfield was praying for her, and slowly she recovered enough that they felt that she could be moved outside of Washington, D.C. It was one of the hottest summers they had known, and they thought if they took her to the seashore, the ocean breezes would kind of restore her uh, far more than the hot, muggy weather of the city. And so President Garfield arranged for her to stay in Long Branch, New Jersey, which is right on the ocean. And he himself was going to take her there, And it was known that he was going to be at the train station. And that particular day, Charles Guiteau was at the train station as well. He had made plans to kill the president. And yet when he saw the president helping his very sick and frail wife up onto the train, 
uh, Gateau decided against carrying out his plan at that moment because he was sure that the shock of seeing her husband shot in front of her would have taken her life in that moment. And so he decided to wait. President Garfield escorted his wife all the way to Long Branch, and for many days he would sit beside her bed uh, day and night as she slowly got better. But finally, work in Washington required him to return home, and it was on July 2nd that he was again at a train station on business, and Charles Guiteau found him there and approached from behind, shooting twice. One of the bullets lodged deep in his abdomen. They apprehended Gateau, and they started to stabilize the president as much as they could there in the, at the train station. And from that moment, you can tell what his concerns were all about. You know, it's said that you can tell the most about someone by how they react and live in times of turmoil and stress, and that certainly was true for James Garfield, because from the very first moment, he really was concerned about others, and his first concern was for his wife, Lucretia. He didn't want her to hear the news of his shooting from anyone else but him so that he could explain and she could hear that he was okay. And so he had somebody nearby write down a message and take it to Lucretia as soon as he could get there. Later on, when Lucretia received the message, she summoned her strength and came directly back to Washington, D.C. to care for her husband. But it was obvious that they needed to move the president back to the White House. And as you can imagine, every single movement brought excruciating pain. And yet he really wanted to put on a good face and comfort the people who were so concerned around him. And so as they were taking him up the steps of the White House, he mustered a smile and he saluted the military uh, people who had gathered there. And he told them, long live the republic. Later on, when his son James was by his bedside, sobbing out of worry and fear for his father, he wanted to try to kind of lighten his son's mood and and put him in a good place. And so he said, take heart, Jimmy. The upper deck is okay. It's just the hall that's damaged. He was worried about the doctor who was caring for him. It had just been 18 years since the assassination of President Lincoln. And so there was a great amount of worry and stress and burden. And he told the doctor, always tell me the truth and don't be afraid. I am not afraid of death. Well, his doctor was actually someone he had known as a child. As boys, they were friends. And so he was relieved that Dr. Bliss would be caring for him after uh, his gunshot wound. And yet he didn't realize that Dr. Bliss... Uh, wasn't good at medical practice. He had made many mistakes. There were charges brought against him, and his care uh, would not help the president out in any way. He didn't believe in the hand-washing and antiseptic techniques that were being developed in Europe at that time, and there would be many times that he would probe uh, the wound uh, to try to locate the bullet with unclean hands and unclean tools, not understanding that that created infection as well as terrible pain for the president. 
At one point, Dr. Bliss had the president on this ridiculous high-fat, high-calorie diet and then abruptly changed it to the opposite, a bare minimum diet, causing the president to lose almost 100 pounds in two months. Friends of the president begged him to fire his doctor and get somebody else. And yet he remained loyal to his friend. He had known him as a child. He believed he was trying his best and he would not abandon him even though he was not receiving the care he needed. In fact, the care was so bad that Charles Gateau used it as his defense. At his trial, Gateau said, I admit to shooting the president, but it was the doctor who killed him. And a lot of that was true. But throughout the 79 days from July 2nd to September 19th that the president suffered such incredible pain, He remained the same person he had been before he was shot. He was still a man of integrity, a man of values, a man of compassion and loyalty. He loved his family, and he had a deep abiding faith in God. He was a man of God in life and in death. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Right after asking, well, who do people say that I am? It was because he knew that they needed that answer in their lives, that despite what the world might say about him or about how to treat people, they needed to know who Christ is in order to live out ministry. Now, fortunately, we won't have to face the kind of persecution that the disciples did, but we do face a world that has a lot to say on how we're to treat people. If you watch the news or a reality television show or go on social media, it seems to be perfectly fine to be rude and mean to other people. If someone slights you in the least, it's almost sport to try to get back as much as you can and post that online. If someone's different, take a picture so that everyone can laugh. But we're not of this world. We are called to be followers of Christ, and we need to be able to answer the question, who do you say that I am? Because it will influence the way that we live. Second, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. Now remember where Jesus took the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. It was a place of pagan worship. Now, the Greek god Pan was worshipped there, and in Greek mythology, Pan was half goat and half man. And he had a ravenous appetite for everything, and he abused young women. And so when you went to his temple to worship him, you worship in a way that would please him. And so there at Caesarea Philippi, there was a lot of drunkenness and gluttony and exploitation of the temple prostitutes most of whom were slaves or captives from foreign lands. And in the midst of this place, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus told Simon Peter, blessed are you, for this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven, 
And from now on, you will no longer be called Simon, but rather Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, this is such a historic moment in the church, because this is the moment for the Catholics, they would see this is the moment where Peter becomes the first pope. And for us to read this, we see that Jesus establishes his church on Peter. And there's great reason to see that. It doesn't always jump out at us, but when Jesus calls Peter, Peter, when he changes his name from Simon to Peter, that was huge. Now, we're used to the name Peter, and so it doesn't jump off the page at us, but it would have to the disciples because Peter was not a name that was used. What it sounded like to them, because Peter means rock in Greek, that Jesus was saying, from now on, you are called rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. And so we understand that from Peter comes the the church that we know today. But there's additional meaning to this passage. When Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, he had just asked them, who do you say that I am? And the you in that phrase is plural. In other words, he's asking all the disciples, who do you say that I am? And when Peter answered, more or less, it was answering for the group. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church meaning not only Peter, but the entire group of disciples and all of us. Jesus uses us to build the church in the world. Now, for me, that's a sobering thought, to think that I can think about the mistakes of the disciples and their shortcomings, but I worry about my own mistakes and shortcomings, but that is God's choice to continually use humanity to bring about images and revelations of his love for the world. Jesus said that he would build the church through the disciples, through us, and continue to do so. Now, I think it's really, really important that we know the answer to the question, who do you say that I am? It's why we emphasize prayer and devotion time here at St. Luke's. How do you get to know Jesus? You can know him through serving the community, by coming to worship, but also through studying your Bible and prayer. I want to encourage you to read through the Gospels. Each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is an account of the life of Jesus. Now, there's just about a month and a half left of summer. And so as the family of faith, if we will commit to reading just two chapters a day of the four Gospels, There are 89 chapters in total between them. We will get through all four Gospels by the end of summer. And not only will we grow in our faith, but we will know more about Jesus. Well, it's interesting that Jesus could have asked those two questions, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? He could have asked them anywhere. Why did he drag the disciples all the way to Caesarea Philippi to ask them there in that place? Well, when we went to visit Caesarea Philippi on our last trip to the Holy Land, we go, and of course you're blown away by the beauty of the stream that still comes out of the cave at the base of Mount Hermon. It's crystal clear, it's beautiful, but what you're also struck with was the rock. There's a rock face of the mountain, 
And the cave has been sculpted out by the waters of that spring that keeps coming forth over years and years. And people on the the side of the rock wall of that mountain had carved niches. And that's where they would put stone idols that they would worship the pagan gods. We could still see the remnants of this large, round rock altar where they would perform pagan sacrifices and ceremonies. And so we're in this place surrounded by stone and rock. Jesus brought his disciples there, not only to say that he would build the church through Peter, through the disciples and all of us, but also to say, upon this rock, I will build my church. In the midst of the world, in the midst of everything that's going on that we would call evil and vile, Jesus said that the church is to be in the midst of that. We are called to go out into the world, not hide from it, not run away to a country and form a Jonestown, Guyana. We are to be in the midst of the world. We are to be the church that Christ is building. And third, Christ said, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. Now, depending on what Bible translation you have, it either reads something like, upon this rock I will build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. Or it might read, upon this rock I build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, it's good to read multiple translations because you start to get different pictures and a better, fuller understanding of the message of Scripture. I love the translations that refer to the gates of hell because when it talks about the gates of hell not prevailing against the church, it's a good reminder that the church was never intended to be in a building away from society. Now, Jesus was not saying that we shouldn't worship in a sacred structure. Jesus spent a majority of his ministry in the synagogue at Capernaum and the beautiful temple at Jerusalem. But after worship, he would go out into the world to heal and to teach. We are called to gather together for worship and then go out into the world to combat the evil and the oppression that we find there. All the examples of rudeness and meanness, we are called to stand up against those. And it says that the gates of hell shall not prevail. That tells you that we are the ones beating down the gates of hell. In other words, we are on the offense, not the defense. But the problem with that phrase is typically our notion of what hell is. When Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, he was not referring to that place of eternal judgment and punishment. He took them to Caesarea Philippi and the cave at the base of Mount Hermon uh, that these waters would flow out of was nicknamed the Gate of Hell. And so he took them to this place because it was viewed to be a place where people were held captive by death. And it's why they would throw sacrifices in the cave to appease the gods of death and to ward off any evil. And yet Jesus was saying, this is not a a place of eternal death. Death is not the final word. 
And so I also love the phrase, the translation, the powers of death shall not prevail against the church. Because death is not the final word. Christ calls us to be out into the world and be in ministry to bring hope and grace and mercy, even in times of great struggle and turmoil. For James Garfield, as his condition declined, there came a moment that he realized that he was not going to survive. And so he asked to be taken home to Ohio, where he could die at home. And yet that would have been 500 miles by train and it would have taken over mountains and it would just been too rough. And so uh, they said that he wouldn't be able to do that. But they suggested for him to go to Long Branch, New Jersey, where his wife had been. It was about half the distance. There were no mountains. And he agreed to go to the uh, seashore and hopefully the ocean breezes would bring comfort to him. And from that moment, people signed up to try to help make that possible for him. The Navy Corps of Engineers uh, designed and put together this rubber bed that was full of water to help minimize the jostling that he would experience on the train. And the Pennsylvania Railroad Company outfitted an entire train car for the president and all of his medical needs, and they prepared a second car for his family. There was only one problem. The train station in Long Branch was a full mile away from the home where he was going to stay. And so the railroad company came up with the idea that they would build a spur of track that led to the front door of that house. They arranged for railroad workers and the supplies and the tools. And when those workers got there, uh, they found that the entire town had showed up to help. Now, it was late in the afternoon by the time they started working, but temperatures were still in the 90s, and they, the town had put out refreshment tables of food and lemonade. The men of the town were helping to build track right beside the workers, and young boys who were too young to help build track had, to me, the worst job. In the heat, uh, it was going through the night. They still had to be able to see, and so they held torches for 15 minutes at a time so that everyone could see to keep working. And by the next day, it was finished. And the train started on its way, and they made it within several yards of the house. Apparently, the last several yards were on an incline, and the train just couldn't overcome it. And so the strongest men there volunteered to push the train the rest of the way, and they did. Two weeks later, that same track and train would be used to carry President James Garfield's body back to Washington, D.C., to lie in state at the U.S. Capitol. But hundreds and hundreds of people who had been so moved by the way that he lived his life were inspired to make something happen for him that death would not be the final word. They moved a railroad track. They moved a train to be able to do it. When we know who Christ is, we can move mountains. And that is what we're called to do, to be the church in the world, sharing a message of God's love to bring hope for all people. And it begins with our answer to his question, 
Who do you say that I am? It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. Amen.